0: Hi, my name is uh, Benji Shulman. Um, thanks for the wonderful uh, debate so far. I'm just interested in the concept of the intermediary institution building because I've been doing a bit of studying into some of that in the last while. And you're just struck in the last century, you know, the amount of t- amount of women, for example, who were keen building these kind of institutions because they were at home or or had some, or, or if you look at the trade unions, for example, workers who had extra time and capacity to build these very large uh, institutions that were able to hold the state to account in many ways or, or, or achieve other political ends. And I just wonder about in the way that modern societies is structured where you have two, you know, just to survive you have two families working, the cost of things is very high and I think groups like Afriform Af- Af- have done really well uh, in, in building these things but I do wonder about if it's possible to build the kind of institutions at the strength that you need to achieve the kind of political freedom space that you're talking about at
1: the moment. I'll tell you a story that Kelly Creel told me. He said during COVID, um, a lot of people found this immense value in being able to contribute through their communities. Um, the idea that you could go and engage in private charity was a way to sustain yourself you know, on a spiritual level during that time when the state had really taken control of everybody's lives. And so I think communities can be this enormous source of support in other ways. Sometimes people aren't able to do it themselves, right? But they can donate. Um, they can play a role and they can sort of feel part of this thing that's bigger than them. Um, I mean, the Free Market Foundation has been around 50 years. Afri Forum is a new organization but has, I think, the biggest civil rights organization on the continent. I mean, 300,000 members who feel that they are proud members who can contribute to this thing, who can play an active role as volunteers or you know, through private donations. Um, but I'm sure both of you have some thoughts on that as well.
2: Yeah, I know if I just go. Could- First, yeah, of course, yeah. First, of course you can, uh, especially in South Africa. L- look, the South African state is, is weak. Uh, the, the, its main strength lies in our perception of its own strength. There effectively is no South African state, if you ask me. And AfriForum and Solidarity, more broadly, is the perfect, I think, global example where there is a new source of power and authority in South Africa that I don't think rivals the state. I think it far, far exceeds the power of the South African state. It's only our perception uh, of it as a, it's, a, it's a civil rights organization. The South African government is significantly weaker, I would say, than, than a civil society organization like AfriForum uh, uh, or, or Solidarity. And I think you, you can probably find examples of this around the world. Obviously, when you have totalitarian regimes like China, you're going you're gonna to struggle. Um, But I I think that if there is an answer to totalitarianism in China, it is not being a kind of a liberal op-ed writer. Uh, It's it's definitely building kind of community institutions underground and and, uh, using that as a a check and balance on the power of that state. It's the only game in in town, effectively. Um, And and, and just to uh, make a a, a small point here, and this is that uh, it is true that the individual will never be able to secure freedom alone. And this is something that a lot of communitarians, conservatives use as a criticism of liberalism, but in my view, liberals have never said that that is the case. Uh, so yes, absolutely. The only way really to to answer your question, to, to secure freedom is through community building. Uh, you, you you defend individual freedom collectively.
3: Yeah, I think, and- just to link to to the, uh, the reference you made to, to Kali Kriel's comment is at Afri forum, one of our most, um, you might say, successful projects is something we call Box for a Boer. And that happened uh, especially with, uh, we didn't call it Box for a Boer back then, but with the Naisna fires. And now recently, more recently also with the droughts and the fires. And Box for a Boer was saying that uh, we, we're going to, hire some trucks and you can pack a box with stuff whatever you can you can and bring it to our office and we're going to put it on the truck and we're going to take it out to these communities with local institutions either the church or a school or whatever and they are going to make sure that it gets distributed to the right people and we were blown away by by these photos of every entire parking lot just stuffed with boxes everywhere people just bringing boxes and that's a good example of community involvement i I just want to there was a, a reference to to the involvement of women. And I think that's very important one, because I think, um, uh, women in, in terms of community institutions play a much bigger role than people tend to, to think. Um, and, and I always say that that this maybe links to my earlier comment about the threat of thinking about everything in terms of economics, that the most important work is often work that is not, um, uh, necessarily materialistic or is not uh um, you might say um, um uh, profitable and and so for example um i spoke with a friend the other day who who, uh, um, who said to me how tired she was and i asked why is she tired and she said she spent the whole day and she listed everything she's doing in terms of being involved with the school it's a private school and she's doing a, organizing a fundraising for the school and there was this event that they had to go to and now they're going to speak with these people and i clearly get the message she was much more tired than i was by the end of the day and it's not work that you get paid for it's it's volunteer work but it's that's really the type of work that 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 keeps a a community going in terms of maybe one other comment um in terms of whether the communities are strong enough obviously the optimist in me would say yes but i do think there's there are obviously different aspects that you need to consider and one thing and i know this is controversial but i think it's worth mentioning is we we tend to underestimate the significance of something like demographics. Um, And and the reason why I say this is, let's use an example of if you are an individual Muslim living in a community surrounded by thousands of Christians, it's going to be very difficult for you to be involved with community institutions. Um, so so there is something important, I think, about in the South African context of communities living closer to each other. Um, and I know in the South African context, it's, it's a controversial thing to say, but I think there, there is some important lesson that I think is something that we should talk about more because it is controversial, but there's also an element of truth in, in the significance of not only culture and, and institutions, but also demographics.
1: Yeah, on that note, for those of you who don't know Benji, um, Benji is one of the really brightest minds in the country and works for the Zionist Fed. Um, and the Jewish community in South Africa is very small. Um, there are 60 million South Africans and there are 60,000 um, South African Jews. Um, and physical proximity is quite important because you've got to walk to synagogue. You can't drive um, on the Sabbath. And so you have these very tight-knit communities in certain parts of the country, like in Glen Hazel, um, and that can play a role in keeping that community enriched. I suppose one of the interesting developments about the uh, COVID era was people being able to contact each other online and the Jewish report immediately leapt into action and you know, had Jews all around the world interacting in this online space um, and I'm sure it's been an amazing thing for AfriForum as well going abroad and finding supporters abroad and having people who can be part of your community without sharing your physical space um, I saw that uh, Ernst Fenzel had his hand up
4: Sure. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, This has been a fascinating conversation. I want to ask a question specifically for Martin, but you're also welcome to add some of your own thoughts on this. And I think it's it's one of the, the pressing issues of our time that we can have many intellectual conversations about ideology versus ideology, theory versus theory, this constitution versus this constitution. The end of the day we still live in the real world out there where the tire hits the road and we see the product of many of these ideas manifest out there it's not just a fun debate to have a lot of these ideas impact our lives on a daily basis actually ruin some people's lives on a daily basis and i think what's very important to discuss and that's why i want both of your thoughts But i want to start with you martin is when you mention that South Africa has a pretty decent constitution in your regard, but it's not being interpreted by classical liberals in the correct way, how do you bridge that gap between the theoretical on paper and reality when you have a decent watertight theory, but it's not penetrating into reality? Reality is actually regressing or crumbling while you are absolutely, I'm sure you're absolutely certain in the validity and the value of your theory but you're actively seeing that it's not bleeding into reality as you would like. How do you build that bridge? And I'd like you to to start and then also to hear some of uh, Adams' thoughts as well, that building that bridge between theory and reality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, Mark mentioned that he might ask us to to go into, what do we see about the weaknesses for our own side of liberalism? And one of the things that I jotted down was that, liberalism in theory speaks as if it's always in power so it's always like this is how things are the state protects your life liberty and property great that's obviously not the reality and i think i'm very fortunate to be a south african where i've borne witness to what is the answer the the most liberal answer to what you do in such circumstances and that again is it's the zionist federation it's af it is solidarity you we're not in power, so you build power. You build power outside of the state, and you use that as your vehicle to get your point across. I'm I'm an advocate, not a, a legal advocate. I'm an advocate of ideas. That's kind of my skill set. Um, but I'm also a paying member of AfriForum, so I, I try to to do what I can. Um, but you do need those institutions. You can't just have advocates like me writing articles and strongly worded letters to to the president. It's not going to help. You need to build that source of authority and power. Now, uh, the Free Market Foundation is, exa- is an example of that. The Institute of Race Relations is an example of that. In the United States, in New Hampshire, you have something called the Free State Project, where a bunch of uh, libertarians have decided, we're all going to move to New Hampshire, and we're going to take over the organ- or It's like an India national democratic revolution there. We're going to mm-hmm. take all the levers of power. And they've had some successes, uh, they, they've had some successes. And that is how you do it. That's, that's simply how you do it. You need to build those institutions. You need to create power outside the state. As far as the constitution is concerned, uh, if I had to I, I hypothesize, we would need advocates, real advocates, not just ideas advocates, uh, and attorneys and former judges and jurists to get together and establish new law societies, establish new uh, bars um, where they say, listen, we are liberals mm-hmm. and this is how we read the constitution or we are communitarians and this is how we read the constitution. And from now on, we're going to insist on this. That is the, the greatest example of this around the world is the Federalist Society in the United States uh, for, for, well, centuries. Uh, conservatives didn't have a legal voice in the United States. It was always assumed that the American constitution would be a conservatively interpreted document. At some point that stopped with uh, FDR and the New Deal and so on, packing the courts. And conservatives got together and they said, well, this won't do. And they established the Federalist Society. And now (laughs) the Supreme Court is dominated by Federalist Society-affiliated judges because they put the work and they created that source of, of organization, of coordination uh, uh, in practice. And they did this, this slow, hard work of going into law schools, talking to students, uh, indoctrinating up and coming attorneys. They did the hard work and it paid off. It's a long-term game, but you have to have exactly that action element to it. You have to organize, you have to coordinate, you have to build institutions of power to take what you believe and to make it a reality?
3: Well, um, the problem with the South African constitution, and that, by the way, that's how revolutions start. When, <laughs> when, when people consume alcohol and say things like, the problem with the constitution is, um, so, um, so this is not to start a revolution, but, but I, I think just to link to the point that the theory is quite good, but the constitution assumes certain things about Society and reality, when that reality, the, the reality that we actually have, doesn't speak to to the theory. So the constitution claims to be the highest authority um, in 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 the land or in the country, but but a, a document can never be the highest authority. The highest authority would at least be whoever has the right to interpret it. Um, and so the the and, and this is actually something I'm I'm, I'm linking to. To, to something that Martin has written about this as well, is the different interpretations of the constitution. And so when the constitution says, for example, that you can only expropriate property when it's in the, when it's in the public interest. As far as I'm concerned, there's a very clear explanation as to when is it in the public interest um, to, to expropriate property. But if you ask uh, Julius Malema, he would give you a completely different answer. But I'm not on the Judicial Service Commission, but he is, um, and so and and there are many such examples about certain things. And equality is probably the best example. The Constitution says we are all equal, and and to me equality means something along the lines of equal opportunities. But someone else would read that and say, well, the Constitution says we are equal, so we need more socialism. Um, we need to be equally poor, and then we're equal. And and so so the 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 thing is that that South Africa is a a, a is a multipolar society with different, different cultures, different, I don't want to say different ideologies, but that as well, different ways of thinking about life. And the constitution is this single text that could be interpreted in different ways. And that's where, and in a sense, everyone is frustrated. Um, not so much about the constitution, but about the political dispensation um, where a lot of people feel that the constitution is supposed to protect us, but it's not doing that. Um, and, and then the, you have a lot of people who feel that, according to the Constitution, we should, we should experience certain things, but we're not experiencing it. Or we should, we should receive certain things that we believe are rightfully ours, but we're not getting it. So there's this, this friction in terms of, of what the consequences of the Constitution would be. And I think that's, that's the problem with theory and, and, and practice.
5: Um, I'm very interested by the sense of community. In Western Europe, we are very interested by the sense of minority. Now, I, I would like to know, uh, as a conservator, which state you estimate to be in the world the best you would like to be, element one. And talking about freedom, mixing right and duty, we have duty within a community and we may have right without a community which means I would like to have your clear definition about whatsoever the Western world do not teach us for quite a while in terms of uh, community or destruction of community versus minority rights. Whatsoever right can be. I I love rabbits. I want to put rabbits in the church of my neighbor. Uh, And this element is very important for me to understand through your liberalism or conservatism. And in this extent, I think we are blessed in Africa Because we are far more primitive in our existence, in our perception, and in our duty to be, which begin our right.
6: We still yeah. We just after, and we'll set an opportunity for questions, questions and answers. Um, um, and uh, yeah, we, we can, can interact. interact. I think it's very important well, that we yeah. lay out the, the main arguments first and foremost.
1: Mark, it's you. Well, David, thank, thank you very much Paul, for the uh, one, one more. And, and yeah, um, my, my friends. friends. Ernest, would you like to start off, you've written your PhD thesis on... Freedom and different conceptions of freedom. Why does freedom matter, and how are the different ways in which we can understand it?
3: The invitation and for having this event at this wonderful venue. It's it's great to be here. Um, the, the freedom is a peculiar thing in the sense that that. I've never met someone who is not in favor of freedom um, everyone wants freedom. Everyone regards freedom as something that ought to be pursued or cherished or protected. Um, and fought. freedom is something that is gen- uh, regularly or generally accepted as something that's worth fighting for and it's worth dying for. Um, and the great martyrs of history were all the martyrs who were willing to die for freedom. Um, yet, uh, People don't seem to agree on what it actually means, and and there are so many there are some fascinating stories um, about wars being fought where both sides claim to be on the side of liberty or freedom and and one, one of the worst examples I know of was was the Spartacus rebellion in Rome, where um, Spartacus, as we know, was a, a gladiator or a slave, um, and he had this rebellion against uh, the Roman Republic. it was before the empire for freedom and he his rebellion was framed as a, a fight for freedom. Um, but his rebellion was, was interpreted by the Romans as a challenge to Roman, Roman liberty because the Republic was, was seen as the manifestation of Roman freedom. So to rise up against the Roman Republic is to rise up against freedom. Um, and when, when Spartacus' revolt was eventually crushed by, by Crassus, he had 6,000 of his men crucified all along the Appian road towards Rome as a sign of what will happen to people who dare challenge the Roman conception of freedom, which is ironic because the whole revolt was about freedom. So um, I don't think, I've never met someone who disagrees with freedom being important. What I could say in terms of the second part of the question is that um, generally, people, there are many ways to think about freedom. There's religious freedom, there's freedom of speech, there's economic freedom. So it diverges into different paths. But broadly speaking, most people who have tried to sort of frame it into categories would say that they are broadly speaking two categories, um, two ways of thinking about freedom. There might be more, but um, if I can just reference one or two people. So one, Thomas Sowell, I want to start with him. He didn't speak about freedom as such, but more about human nature and he speaks about the constrained view and the unconstrained view. And so the constrained view is to say that we are constrained. We are uh, fallible beings. We are not perfect. We cannot be perfected. Um, And the unconstrained view is that if we do the right things, we as human beings can become, we can unleash our potential. And so the way, the reason why I mentioned this is because the way we think about human nature generally leads to the way we think about freedom. And if I can mention maybe two interesting views, we know that Isaiah Berlin is maybe the most example of um, um, division. He talks about positive freedom and negative freedom. In other words, freedom for something as opposed to freedom, you know, not to be constrained. But there's an, um, I want to mention two people just to sort of explain what I think the discussion is. And I'd be curious to hear Martin's view on this. One is um, DC Schindler, who's a, um, um, a philosopher in, in Washington, D.C., he, he divides freedom into two categories. The one is what he calls freedom from above, and the other one is freedom from below. And what he means by that is freedom from above, he, he, he links to the, the Western tradition, and freedom from above essentially says that there's a hierarchy, and God is at the top, and, uh, but there's some, and we as human beings are very small. We are, um, um, there's much bigger things out there that are bigger than us, And so there's God and then below God, but also above us, we find our traditions and we find our communities and our cultures and our heritage and so forth. And then we're basically in a way you can say at the bottom, we as, as individuals. Um, and so freedom from below is what he says is the hierarchy is in a way being tipped around by modern, the modern way of thinking about freedom to say that actually it's the individual that's at the top and the individual who's at the top can choose whether he, he, he wants to believe in God or whether he wants to protect his heritage or his tradition. So the one way of thinking about it is this put the person or the individual at the bottom, and the other one is to put him at the top. And then another interesting, I'll, I'll just conclude with that, is um, I recently discovered a, a philosopher in the Netherlands, Annelien de Dain, who wrote a big, the book, the book is just called Freedom. And she says there are two ways of thinking about freedom, the one she calls democratic freedom, and the other one she calls civil freedom, or And democratic freedom, interestingly enough, she, she equates it to the, the, the ancient or the traditional view. She says democratic freedom means, means um, self-governance by the, the people, by the nation. So when the people govern themselves, it's a democratic conception of freedom. And the other way of thinking about it is the civil freedom. In other words, it's the freedom of the citizen. So when the citizen can organize his life the way he sees fit, that's that's a way of thinking about freedom as something that belongs to, to the citizen. So maybe that's a good way to, to start from our side.
1: Well, thank, thank you. That's, that's very, very useful, useful to, to chart out the different ways in which freedom can play a role and how often there's a tension between those views. Um, I often think that the language used by the writers uh, does a disservice to some of the ideas. When you think about uh, Isaiah Berlin's idea of positive freedom or the unconstrained vision, both of those things just from the tag, sound wonderful. But of course the authors point out why they're so dangerous. So Martin, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Um, the idea of positive freedom, the idea that the state must supply you with various resources so that you can be free, and this idea of uh, people can become gods, that they are unconstrained in their potential, and what kind of a society you would design if you think about uh, that conception of freedom and the dangers of that.
2: No, absolutely. So. Uh, Hayek goes into a lot of detail uh, when he talks about uh, the knowledge problem uh, and so on. And and he talks about what he would call the false individualists of effectively the French Revolution, uh, uh, which he calls effectively uh, the the, the French rationalists. And their whole thinking, and these people call themselves liberals, uh, much to my dismay, and they call themselves individualists, much to my dismay. Uh, and their idea effectively was, uh, in, in the same way that Thomas Shaw talks about the unconstrained freedom, and this is this idea that there is this capital R reason out there that the human individual can latch onto and design perfection. It is this idea that kind of came with the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment had many wonderful ideas, but this is maybe not one of them. It is that the order we have in society is not a spontaneous one, but because human beings have access to this thing called reason, we can, as, in, as individuals, but as small groups as well, design this perfect society where there is no fallibility. And then you have the other side of that, which, uh, I mean, I agree with this idea, the negative freedom, but it's not, a, it's not a negative concept. It's actually a very empowering concept. The idea that people are fallible. Uh, people, people uh, individuals are bad. People are self-interested. Um, and uh, some people are simply stupid. And uh, we need to give people those individuals, that room, that domain, where they can do the least harm uh, to society. uh, 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 Hayek, again, uh, speaking specifically about Adam Smith, but also then bringing in uh, Edmund Burke and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, he says that the way they went about conceiving of freedom was a a system under which bad men can do the least harm. And that is this uh, liberal individualist Constrained view of freedom, where people are constrained by social forces they are constrained by uh, uh, the, their communities their um, their religions certainly um, but the the key thing is that that is all voluntary ultimately um, and and when you introduce the involuntary element to it, you do eventually come onto this unconstrained path because when you as the individual do not get to act according to what your own conception of the good is, you are effectively acting according to someone else's. That is not an an avoidable step. You're either acting according to your own or that of someone else. And when you have that uh, thing where you you are acting according to the conception of someone else, uh, then you are hurtling down the road of this idea of the perfectibility. You will have the powerful class that will have this uh, design for society. Uh, which ultimately uh, is, is destructive to freedom. And um, I mean, I don't disagree with uh, anything I think that, that Ernst said. I just think the note that I would make that's kind of meta is that we need, we, language is important and we need words for different things. Women has a meaning, man has a meaning. That's something we're losing in this postmodernist era. And uh, as a, uh, someone who is very committed in my daily life to this notion of freedom, we need freedom to mean something particular. Uh, and we have different words that can mean other things. Um, uh, but, but when we deal with freedom, we need it to mean something specific. Uh, uh, and, and I think that is probably where uh, uh, kind of the individualist and the communitarian conceptions of freedom uh, uh, diverge and not in that there is a disagreement about what is good and what's valuable, but rather that that is not the best a definition to attach to freedom, freedom, uh, uh, for, for, uh, liberals like myself would mean the individual gets to do what they deem, uh, uh, appropriate and, and good, uh, and everyone is afforded that, that right. Uh, and if you take that away, if that is, if that is not freedom, then we need a different word for that. What is that? I would submit the, the, uh, the best word is freedom or liberty. Um, uh, but if, uh, that's ultimately what, what we, I think, uh, have a difference of opinion on. But we do need a term for
1: that. I'd like to go that a uh, bit further. Um, I mean, one of the main liberal ideas is that people have differing ideas about what is the good life. Um, a good example about this is people will worship different gods. Um, and one way to end the Hundred Years' War in Europe was to say that you should have religious liberty, that you should be free to, you know, uh, worship the God of your choice uh, and that you won't go and punish people who worship a different God. One of us might be wrong. Um, uh, Or even if I privately believe that I'm right, I think you should have the right to be wrong. And the question is, how far do we take that? Um, Mill says that you should have, you know, uh, freedom up until the point at which you cause someone harm. So freedom to swing my fist to the edge of your nose and no further. Um, and that could include f- f- exercising your freedom in a way that we think of as you've pursued bad things in life. You've uh, lived, led a life um, focused solely on, let's say, um, trifling pleasures um, as opposed to things that are meaningful. Um, do you think that people ought to be required to lead virtuous lives? Um, that um, traditions and what you know, their community thinks of as being important should play a dominant role as opposed to what they personally believe?
3: Yeah, thank you. That's a a very good and I think a very important question. I I perhaps start by saying that I agree with this notion that words are important and the meaning we attach to them. And I've also found that discussions like these, especially when it's framed as a debate, tends to run into a dead end when people start talking about liberalism or conservatism um, uh, or terms like that. Because I I know people who, who describe themselves as liberals who would say, I disagree with what Martin has said, um, and, and the other way around with me as well, I, I'm, I'm sure that would be the case. So I think one way, and this is not, I'm not attributing this view to Martin, cause I don't think it's his view. I, no, I'm it's not his view is, is talk when we talk about maybe another word, one word that has been used a lot is the word license to say that we should differentiate between liberty and license and license is is to say, do what you want to do. Um, and, and my view or argument is that that is not freedom. freedom. Uh, that that's not the same as freedom. So I think part of what there was this run up debate or discussion that led sort of to, 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 um, to where we are today. We, me, I wrote an opinion piece and Martin wrote and we responded to each other. Um, and, and I referenced Steven Pinker who says in enlightenment now that freedom implies the freedom to destroy your life. And, um, I don't think that's freedom. I think that's that's li- license. It's not freedom to say to to choose to be a a drug addict or to choose to use drugs and eventually become a drug addict sounds more like slavery than it does to uh, to me than it does to freedom. So 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 my my argument would be that that the notion of freedom has to be by definition is linked to virtue to doing good. Um and now the question that that you asked is is and that Martin asked also, sort of in the run-up, is then who decides what is good and what isn't? And I think there's an important point here that to say that that uh, freedom is not the individual doing whatever he wants to do is not an argument to say that we need the state to come in and make laws that forces you to do certain things. Um, the the point is rather, or at least my argument, and the point I would want to stress is that there's something good and something natural um, and healthy in a community engaging among themselves about what constitutes good and having conversations in the context of the community and debates and disagreements and then and it's um, and it can be drawn up to the point where it becomes an abstraction and that's not what i want to do but but if the question is what is good my view or the communitarian view that i would i would like to to stress is not it's not simply the individual decides for himself what is good it's the individual within the context of is community engaging with each other, having discussions and then deciding as a community. And within that context, that does not, that is not to say that if you disagree with, let's say, the majority opinion that you have to be forced into a particular view, but it also, that's the one extreme is if you, if you dissent, then you are forced to, to agree with the community. But the other extreme would be that if you disagree with what the community says that you, you have to destroy the community or you have to call on the state to, to force the community out of existence to protect your individual freedom and the balance is somewhere between the two.
1: So Martin, who do you think the determiner of the good life ought to be? Um, and how do you see this relationship between individuals, their communities, institutions, and the state?
2: That's a it. very difficult question to ask a non philosopher. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I would, I would rather say that I, I agree with Ernst that, that the, the, the concept of good and healthy and, and social and so on, it's, 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 not, it's not determined by an individual on an island. It, it, it necessarily must have a social context. And yes, I mean, the, we, we, we can't ignore practical reality. And the reality is that in human history, at the, call it the height of liberal individualism or whatever, even rationalism, uh, there was no such thing as the, atomistic individual who just determined the good for themselves in the abstract and lived this life of of total perfect license. Uh, that's just not a reality. There's always a social context. And yes, the community, uh, and, and I always want to emphasize this point that at least for what I consider to be liberalism, liberal individualism, is, not, is that it's certainly not an anti-communitarian idea. Uh, I, I don't think these two things Sit in opposition to each other at all because the 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 individual just always exists in a community, and this is this might be something uh, where there is disagreement on. But but where I would then say is that there are different communities, and even within a community, that has determined a good in that community, a different community might form and leave that community. There is no such thing as the Afrikaner community. I would say there are many Afrikaner communities. Uh, And uh, uh, I think we might be part of the same one, but Pierre de Foch and Max Duprea might not be part of the same Afrikaner uh, community. Um, uh, And that's fine. Uh, They have effectively opted out of the values that I would say Afrikaners generally deem important, what we would consider to be the common good. And that's fine. And they've gone off and they've live that life. Um, uh, And that's the same with if you uh, the most libertine, Swedish kind of, uh, 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 yeah, libertine community somewhere, like a commune of, of people with no morals, that is a community united around values that I would consider to be totally de- degenerate and uh, unhealthy, but nonetheless, they are doing so. They have formed a community and they have determined for themselves what the common good is. Now, that is a way of saying that the individual decides what the common good, uh, well, what the good life is, but the individual always express that within a community that they find for themselves. Uh, they, they, the hermit kind of is, is, a, is an exception to, to what we see in society. And, and they, in any event, do not have an influence on what happens in society. They do not destroy the community. They literally just leave the community and, and sit apart from it. Um, now the the, the thing that that Ernst identifies the extreme of the individual is kind of freedom destroying the community is is something like, it's a modern thing that we've seen. Uh, this this idea that your lived experience must be the total dominant overriding consideration in everything. And it doesn't matter what voluntary institutions stand in the way of that, they must be swept aside. That I would absolutely agree is not freedom because in so doing, you are denying the exact same individual freedom that you are ostensibly claiming for yourself to everyone else. You are not organizing yourself into a community that agrees with you. You're imperialistically imposing your values on people who do not agree with you. Uh, and you, you do that through the power of the state. And uh, that, that is, that's certainly an, an extreme, and that is something I think you can call individualism. Uh, but it, I, I wouldn't say that's something you could call liberal individualism because in my mind, at least, and that what I submit is that liberalism is political humility. It is the idea that, listen, we do not know, we simply, we, each of us thinks we know what is best, but none of us knows who is actually right, really, uh, objectively. And that is why you must afford others that leeway to self-organize into their own communities, which they simply will do. the atomistic individual will never exist except in a totalitarian hellscape where the state forces people to be atomistic individuals, which is not, it's not something that cannot be done, but I've only seen it in fiction so far.
1: <laughs> so I know there's a lot of agreement about the importance of individuals being able to determine their own destiny, being able to do that with like-minded other individuals in the form of a community, communities being able to deliberate amongst each other to work out what they value for that to change over time, for sub-communities to be created. What are the the practical threats to that in South Africa at the moment? Um, in some of the campaigns that you've been involved in, where do you feel that communities are under pressure um, and where is it coming from?
3: Yes, I, I, I want to jump to a solution, but I'll keep that, some, that, there's just an important aspect that I think we haven't touched on, um, which is the importance of institutions. Mm. But but in terms of, of our experience in South Africa, because it's good to, and I'm happy you asked the question because we need to talk about, okay, how do we make this practical? And I think part of the, from from a community perspective, and you could say from an individualist perspective as well, I think part of the problem in South Africa is, um, let me just, let me start by saying this, that it's true, you can have, I think it's important to stress that you can have multiple identities and you can belong to multiple communities and so in, you mentioned Afrikaans and the Afrikaners. So there's actually a difference between, part of, between being part of the Afrikaans community as opposed to the Afrikaner community, just as an example. And that's not the same as the South African community if such a thing exists. But, but that's the point I want to get to is I think part of, part of the problem, there are multiple reasons to the trouble we have in South Africa at least. But I think part of the problem with the current dispensation is that there was such a strong emphasis placed on being a South African that other community identities was 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 regarded as a threat and i know at afri forum we've heard this a lot um by you know in different uh, spheres we've had people say but okay so you guys say you are afrikaners but that's the old way of thinking you need to abandon that that sense of identity and adopt the new identity under the assumption or the claim that that Everyone in South Africa is the same and we think about things the same way when in truth we don't. We have different cultures and that doesn't mean necessarily the one is right and the one is wrong. Um, So a practical example would be AfriForum has a good relation with with traditional communities over South Africa and the most prominent or most famous or best, best known is the Zulu community and the Zulu king. So the Zulu community, at least in... Under the king has a they have a completely different view of property rights than 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 we do. We believe in private property, they believe in communal ownership, and the king decides. But it's not for us to go to them and say, "Well, you guys are wrong, um, so you need to change your way of thinking," um, because we also need other than simply saying other than. And I think that's part of the 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 threat that we currently have in in modern society, not only in South Africa, is we tend to only think in terms of of statist identity and in terms of of economic benefit Um, so i think what what's part of the problem at least in south africa is to to have a just a healthy recognition for the fact that south africa is i wouldn't say it's a community you can rather say it's a society that consists of different communities and the way to deal with that is not to pretend that everyone is the same or to pretend that everyone to try to force everyone to be the same but to say listen let's Let's accept that we view things differently and let's, let's encourage mutual recognition and respect between different communities. That's at least one, I think, important part. Then, of course, there are other problems like, you know, corruption and, and, and so forth. But, but I think this community aspect is, is and, and we always, we, we, I've used the example before, it's just a famous quote that sort of illustrates this. It's Samora Michelle who said, for the nation to prosper, the tribe must die. So that's um, that's a way of replacing what you could describe as the natural community with an artificial community and hoping that it will work when I think South Africa has shown that it doesn't work. So, Martin, you've talked about
1: why it's important to limit power, that liberals accept the nature of human beings as having a potential for being greatly destructive. What are the institutional mechanisms that we ought to have in place to ensure that the ruthless, the bloodthirsty, aren't able to enact their will on the rest of us.
2: I, I think What's that's going? kind of the, the answer to that lies at the very core of what liberalism is, as a political ideology. And it, it also kind of uh, alludes to kind of where there's been an inadequate kind of thought attributed to it. So the, the kind of the historical or the, the standard answer is we have the separation of powers and we have checks and balances. This is a totally statist answer. Uh, but it is an important answer and that's, it's part of it. Um, uh, you have the state that is internally diffused, uh, both vertically and horizontally. Um, but then you have, uh, what I would say is, uh, the, perhaps the most important thing that is something that turns, and the solidarity movement, uh, why in a, in a book that's coming out later this year, in which I contributed a chapter, I kind of, uh, uh uh write it specifically uh, acknowledging the solidarity movement as practical liberalism <laughs> and that is uh, uh, the intermediate institutions that exist between the state and the individual uh now liberals like hayek acknowledge the the importance of these institutions but uh, uh the emphasis has always been on the state um and 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 that's kind of uh, in an issue that, uh, that stopped with the American Revolution, I would, I would almost say, it's uh, where, where liberal constitutionalism started the conversation and it ended almost immediately. Uh, and it stuck with the Trias Politica, the uh, horizontal checks and balances and the vertical checks and balances. And that is the, the, the model that we've implemented across the world, almost without exception. Um, I would say that, uh, and, and here uh, Professor Quest Malan has written quite a bit, and I, I take my cue from from Afriform as well, and that is that the power of communities in society must also increasingly be recognized to kind of self-regulate. Um, and I mean the na- I know this is recorded, and that's very unfortunate, but uh, the National Party <laughs> had interesting ideas in 1992 uh, when they uh, uh, proposed their kind of post-apartheid plan for South Africa. And it uh, it was a very federalist model that would effectively distribute power, not only at the national level, the uh, provincial and the regional and the local level, but they went all the way to the neighborhood level and said that certain powers must vest at the geographic neighborhood level. I would say that that's something that remains unexplored. Um, and then the other thing as well, uh, 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 and again, uh, Professor Malan has uh, spoken quite a, quite a bit about this, and that is that, for instance, professions in society, the bar, you and I had a discussion about this the other day. These must become generally self-regulating, sovereign in their own domain. Uh, that is, uh, if you're an advocate, uh, you and, and your fellows must decide how the advocate's profession is, uh, is governed to an extent how the judge's profession is governed as well, uh, given that interplay. And this must really apply across the board, because in in so doing, you have a a far more significant diffusion of power, which is ultimately what liberal politics is supposed to be about. As Hayek and others have put it, uh, liberalism is about the elimination as far as possible of coercion in society. And the only way to really make that a practical reality is not to just compartmentalize the state, uh, because ultimately people are drawn to power. The, the worst among us will always want to then be in the state, whether in the judiciary, in the legislature, or in the executive, to exercise that power. You have to diffuse power in every domain, in, in, in every context. Uh, and yes, uh, <laughs> that might lead to inefficiencies. Uh, of course, it may, may lead to inefficiencies. Uh, there is benefit to be gained in a unitary system. It's more efficient in many cases. But efficiency, efficiency outside of the market is not the only thing you should be uh, striving for in politics. And this is, I would say what liberalism offers is in politics, you want inefficiency. That is the whole point. You want the political system to be inefficient precisely because it is the greatest concentration of coercive power in society. So yeah, I, I've answered your question by saying that liberalism has proposed the various things, but it's, it's not gone quite far enough. And I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure why we started with the Trias Politica and we stop with the Trias Politica. I'm still looking for the answer to that question. I just think that uh, we need to look a little bit further afield, look at Taiwan with their five branches of government, look at Belgium with its recognition of community power, uh, uh, look at the tricameral parliament in South Africa a few years ago as well, uh, as an example of dividing legislative power, not necessarily racially, but into more than just two uh, chambers of a parliament. So I think there's there's a lot more to be done in, in diffusing power, and and, and I think uh, when you have that lodestar of the diffusion of coercive power in society, that kind of leads you down there.
1: Yeah, so I think it's worth recognizing like... the roles that communities and individuals can play in holding the state to account. Uh, Jürgen Habermas has this idea of the democracy that starts off at a coffee shop conversation uh, and then can percolate into communities being formed who care about certain ideas and then, you know, putting pressure on the government to do one thing or another in terms of the laws they pass or how they enforce them. Um, As Africans, we find ourselves in a situation where the state is failing. I I noticed not one person had a moment of shock when the power went out. We are so used to it. Um, I've been doing a bit of traveling overseas, and you kind of have this feeling of uh, having escaped a Stockholm syndrome at times, and then being plunged back into the hostage crisis here. Um the idea that there has to be an alternative to the state I think is so important because we are on the precipice as a country um there is you know we happen to be in one of the the nicest uh parts of the country here, but not very far away uh you know things are desperate um you know just a couple of kilometers down the road you had a you know in the- you're in the inner city and you have people who really are living on the edge you know who are at the behest of the state you have no choice but to um you know, be buffeted by it. And so the importance of having an alternative seems numb more than ever something that has to be conceived of. Um, and if I think about if I think about solidarity's uh, let's say initial movements about thinking about, let's say, preserving Afrikaans and tertiary education, which you have a constitutional right to. You have a lot of litigation. You have a lot of um, universities saying we're going to eradicate this language because everyone will speak English. You have some legal wins. But you also have solidarity saying we'll do it ourselves. We'll build SOLTEC and we'll produce an incredible institution under cost in a very short period of time and the biggest donation will be 10 rand. Um, That is an amazing symbol, not just for the Afrikaans community, but for all South Africans to go, wow, like, you know, if you can get people together, they can achieve incredible things without the need for the state. So I wonder, what are the solutions that you hinted at that are important for dealing with where we're seeing ourselves?
3: I want to Try to remember each of them and just say them quickly, but but the one thing is, is in, if, if we think about it in terms of conservative and liberal, which is not the discussion today, part of the problem here is conservatives accuse liberals of being statists and liberals accuse conservatives of being statists. And, and both of them are right and both of them are wrong because there are different strands um, in, in, um, in these traditions, if you could call them that. I think a good way, just before I get to the institutions, a good way of, of thinking about just a practical example about healthy community um, engagement is... an employee um, coming to work at an institution like AfriForum or Solidarity and then saying something like and we've had it sometimes and we, we sometimes joke about this someone joining the organization and saying something like along the lines of I don't agree with everything but I agree with most of what you guys are doing and I want to be part of this and after six months or a year that person doesn't say that anymore that person agrees with everything and the reason why, um, is because that person becomes part of the community. There's continuous discussions in the hallways and, and that person is part of the process and there are many, there's been some decisions at Afroforum where I suggested one thing and we took another decision, uh, but I went with it, not because I disagree with it, but because that's what a healthy community does. That's what a healthy institution does. And that's healthy. And I think it's normal in any institution. Um, so, so. So that's to me, a good example of how a community ought to function is the, the individual as a citizen participating in the discussion and in the conversation and then, you know, exchanging ideas and, and, and so forth. So, so the, the institution thing, and I, I like the point about wanting the state to be inefficient and, and that's, I think if the South African government was, was, was much more efficient, we would have had much bigger problems uh, in, in South Africa. So, so the, the cool. I think if, if, if I had to say only one thing tonight, that would be that, that a community can only strive for freedom or I don't want to say achieve freedom because I don't think freedom is something that you arrive at and then you have it. It's something that you work for your, your entire life or uh, not even your entire life with, uh, between different generations. But, but the, the, the central most important thing to achieve that is through community institutions is is to build institutions which are outside the the realm of the state, and the institu- an institution can be a university, it can be a social club, it can be a sporting event, and an institution can can even be a just a cultural practice, a tradition. And it's through that because institutions enable people to to engage with each other and to participate and And when you have that, and you mentioned Tocqueville, that's Tocqueville sort of at least in, According to me, that's the one main take out of, of democracy in America is is what really impressed him about the Americans of the 1830s was that they didn't have a strong centralized government, but they were very actively involved within their communities and they were actively involved with building institutions, whether that's a church or a club or a social event. And and through that, that's where the energy, uh, sort of what sparks the energy and and what ignites it. So So in a sense. I'm not just saying this because it's a public platform. This is honestly what I believe and my colleagues believe that, in a sense, we are quite optimistic um, about, about. I don't want to say the future of South Africa, but at least about our future. Um, and and what I mean by that is that I think we've, the Africana community especially, is a good case study of that because we've, I think we, we've always been institution builders and then we, we, we made some terrible mistakes in the last century where we became statists. And, and we, um, we started becoming more and more dependent of the government. The government was very pro-Afrikaner, obviously. And you didn't have to worry about what you teach your children at school, cause the government will care for that. And you, d- you didn't need to become involved with institutions. You just pay tax and the government will, will take care. And then the government started making decisions that everyone didn't agree with. And eventually in South Africa, the government turned and, and became hostile almost overnight. and And so that's why in at least looking at the Afrikaner community as a case study, almost all of the institutions are new. Uh, it's new institutions. That's post ninety four institutions, and I think that's that's a very good sign, and that's to me reason to be optimistic.
1: So, Judge Crichton has this foundation called Freedom Under Law, and there seems to be a tension in that idea that the law is about restricting freedom, uh, and you know you're involved in. Freemark Foundation's Rule of Law Project, and the idea that you know equality before the law is an important value, that non-racialism is an important value. Uh, can you tell us about some of those perspectives? You know, what you're involved in to further those values?
2: Yeah. No, firstly, uh, freedom under law. There is absolutely no tension. <laughs> uh, and again, I, I must always take my hat off figuratively, of course. Uh, to Hayek, who made the point that uh, freedom without law is not freedom. Freedom under law is freedom. That is the only thing you have, and that's uh, what we call civil liberty, effectively. Um, there is certainly tension in that. The tension comes in with how we've redefined law, and this is something that's come, come for many centuries, in that for most of human history, law was a given. Uh, you, don't, you don't go back to uh, 1000 BC and you find the uh, Interstate Session Act it, it doesn't exist, it, it's a new invention. The idea that a group of people can come together in a room and write on a piece of paper their opinion and then just call it an act. And now this is suddenly law that we must all kind of fall in line with. This is a ridiculous idea if you ask me and it's, it's a relatively new idea. And it's it's uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> that is where the tension comes in. If you call that law, this is what Hayek would uh, call the taxis as opposed to the nomos. Uh, Nomos is the law as it exists that is binding of everyone, what we in criminal law would call the malum and say, things that are obviously criminal by their nature, as opposed to the malum prohibitum, the things that are deemed to be unlawful by a a group of politicians. Uh, If you have a a healthy conception of what law is, then there is no no tension uh, between freedom and law. But uh, yeah, some of the things that obviously the, the FMF is involved in, uh, it, it all comes back to the constitution, it's supreme law. And uh, I, I didn't, uh, Ernst and I and Harman Petorius and Svanzeo had a debate a while back where we specifically talked about the ad- inadequacy or the adequacy of the constitution in defending freedom in South Africa. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the written text of the South African constitution. I think it's pretty standard. I think it, it, it's, it's not an outlier. It's a quite a classically liberal constitution. If you read its words, it's pretty good. Uh, it, it comes down to how it's been interpreted. Uh, I wrote in a column for the Daily Friend a while back where I said that the courts must have a classical liberal idea, uh, conception of of uh, constitutionalism to be able to adequately uh, judge the South African constitution. We don't have that. That's unfortunately not the reality we live. Um, But as far as we're concerned at the FMF and the Rule of Law Project, we read the text, what it says. It says South Africa is a society founded upon the value of non-racialism and the supremacy of the Constitution and the rule of law. And we go to court and we insist that this is how things must be. I don't know how optimistic you necessarily always are about the courts. I'm always pessimistic about uh, the courts finding in our favor. But to me, it's not necessarily about winning. It's about saying that this is the right answer to, to constitutionalism. This is the right answer to non-racialism. And I think we have a great platform for that. And and this case that we have coming up where we, uh, uh, on 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 hate speech and specifically about non-racialism and equality before the law, is an opportunity for us to elevate to the level of constitutional discourse, really the the statement, the conviction that, listen, this is this word has a meaning non-racialism it doesn't mean racialism it means non-racialism and uh, we all insist on that it's a very textualist argument but also a very much a, a liberal argument and i think with time look freedom is never gonna be uh, a short-term short-term game with time one hopes that you convince enough people to to come to the realization that listen the words on the paper mean something and that we need to uh, respect that meaning and that we uh, yeah
1: So I must applaud both of the organizations for being some of the few organizations who stand up for a value like non-racialism. Um, it was the clarion call against the apartheid to say that everybody is equal regardless of the color of your skin, that um, we judge people on the content of their character, not what they look like. And it's a value that is fast eroding in South Africa. And I think it's, it's wonderful that both the Fremont Foundation and Africa Forum fight for that value, it's very important. Um, I thought this might be a good juncture to have some audience participation uh, we have a roaming mic so um if you have a question that you'd like to ask uh, please put your hand up
6: yes and if i could ask uh, for you to please hold the microphone very close to your mouth it's a directional microphone so just pretend that you're eating an ice cream uh, i have i have uh, been told that it's been sanitized so
1: benji good to see you
0: Uh, hi, my name is uh, Benji Shulman. Um, thanks for the wonderful uh, debate so far. I'm just interested in the concept of the intermediary institution building because I've been doing a bit of studying into some of that in the last while. And you're just struck in the last century, you know, the amount of t- amount of women, for example, who were keen building these kind of institutions because they were at home or or had some, or or if you look at the trade unions, for example, workers who had extra. Time and capacity to build these very large uh, institutions that were able to hold the state to account in many ways, or, or, or achieve other political ends. And I just wonder about in the way that modern societies is structured, where you have two, you know, just to survive, you have two families working. The cost of things is very high, and I think groups like Afriform Af- Af- have done really well uh, in, in building these things. But I do wonder about if it's possible to build the kind of institutions at the strength that you need to achieve the kind of political freedom space that you're talking about at
1: the moment. I'll tell you a story that Kelly Creel told me. He said during COVID, um, a lot of people found this immense value in being able to contribute through their communities. Um, the idea that you could go and engage in private charity was a way to sustain yourself you know, on a spiritual level during that time when the state had really taken control of everybody's lives. And so I think communities can be this enormous source of support in other ways. Sometimes people aren't able to do it themselves, right? But they can donate. Um, they can play a role and they can sort of feel part of this thing that's bigger than them. Um, I mean, the Free March Foundation has been around 50 years. AfriForum is a new organization, but has, I think, the biggest civil rights organization on the continent. I mean, 300,000 members who feel that they are proud members who can contribute to this thing, who can play an active role as volunteers or, you know, through private donations. Um, but I'm sure both of you have some thoughts on that as well.
2: Yeah, no, if I just go first. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course you can, uh, especially in South Africa. L- look, the South African state is, is weak. Uh, the, the, its main strength lies in our perception of its own strength. There effectively is no South African state, if you ask me. And Afriform and Solidarity more broadly is the perfect, I think, global example where there is a new source of power and authority in South Africa that I don't think rivals the state. I think it far, far exceeds the power of the South African state. It's only our perception uh, of it as a, it's, a, it's a civil rights organization. The South African government is significantly weaker, I would say, than, than a civil society organization like AfriForum uh, uh, or, or Solidarity. And I think you, you can probably find examples of this around the world. Obviously, when you have totalitarian regimes like China you're going you're going struggle um, but i I think that if there is an answer to totalitarianism in China, it is not being a kind of a liberal op ed writer uh, it's It's definitely building kind of community institutions underground and and uh, using that as a a check and balance on the power of that state it's the only game in in town effectively um and 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 just to uh, make a, a a small point here and this is that uh it is true that the individual will never be able to secure freedom alone. And this is something that a lot of communitarians, conservatives use as a criticism of liberalism. But in my view, liberals have never said that that is the case. Uh, so yes, absolutely. The only way really to to answer your question, to, to secure freedom is through community building. Uh, you, you you defend individual freedom collectively.
3: Yeah, I think, um just to link to to the, uh, the reference you made to, to Kali Creel's comment is at Afri forum, one of our most, um, you might say, successful projects is something we call Box for a Boer. And that happened uh, especially with, uh, we didn't call it Box for a Boer back then, but with the Naisna fires. And now recently, more recently also with the droughts and the fires. And Box for a Boer was saying that uh, we we're going to, hire some trucks and you can pack a box with stuff whatever you can you can and bring it to our office and we're going to put it on the truck and we're going to take it out to these communities with local institutions either the church or a school or whatever and they are going to make sure that it gets distributed to the right people and we were blown away by by the, these photos of every entire parking lot just stuffed with boxes everywhere people just bringing boxes and that's a good example of community involvement i, I just want to there was a, a reference to to the involvement of women. And I think that's very important one, because I think, um, uh, women in, in terms of community institutions play a much bigger role than people tend to, to think. Um, and, and I always say that that this maybe links to my earlier comment about the threat of thinking about everything in terms of economics, that the most important work is often work that is not, um, uh, necessarily materialistic or is not, uh, um, you might say, um, um, uh, profitable. And, and so, for example, um, I spoke with a friend the other day who, who, uh, um, who said to me how tired she was and I asked, why is she tired? And she said she spent the whole day and she listed everything she's doing in terms of being involved with a school. It's a private school. Uh, she's doing a, organizing a fundraising for the school. And there was this event that they had to go to, and now they're going to speak with these people. And I, clearly get the message she was much more tired than I was by the end of the day and it's not work that you get paid for it's it's volunteer work but it's that's really the type of work that 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 keeps a a community going in terms of maybe one other comment um in terms of whether the communities are strong enough obviously the optimist in me would say yes but I do think there's there are obviously different aspects that you need to consider and one thing and I know this is controversial but I think it's worth mentioning is we we tend to underestimate the significance of something like demographics. Um, And and the reason why I say this is, let's use an example of if you are an individual Muslim living in a community surrounded by thousands of Christians, it's going to be very difficult for you to be involved with community institutions. Um, so so there is something important, I think, in the South African context of communities living closer to each other. Um, and I know in the South African context, it's it's a controversial thing to say, but I think there there is some important lesson that I think is something that we should talk about more because it is controversial, but there's also an element of truth in in the significance of not only culture and, and institutions, but also demographics.
1: Yeah, on that note, for those of you who don't know Benji, um, Benji is one of the really brightest minds in the country and worked for the Zionist Fed. Um, and the Jewish community in South Africa is very small. Um, there are 60 million South Africans and there are 60,000 um, South African Jews. Um, and physical proximity is quite important because you've got to walk to synagogue. You can't drive um, on the Sabbath. And so you have these very tight-knit communities in certain parts of the country, like in Glen Hazel, um, and that can play a role in keeping that community enriched. I suppose one of the interesting developments about... Uh, COVID era was people being able to contact each other online and the Jewish report immediately leapt into action and, you know, had Jews all around the world interacting in this online space. Um, And I'm sure it's been an amazing thing for AfriForum as well, going abroad and finding supporters abroad and having people who can be part of your community without sharing your physical space. Um, I saw that uh, Ernst Zell had his hand up.
7: Sure. Uh,
4: thank you very much. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to ask a question specifically for Martin, but Aaron, you're also welcome to add some of your own thoughts on this. And I think it's it's one of the the pressing issues of our time that we can have many intellectual conversations about ideology versus ideology, theory versus theory, this constitution versus this constitution. At the end of the day we still live in the real world out there where the tire hits the road and we see the product of many of these ideas manifest out there it's not just a fun debate to have a lot of these ideas impact our lives on a daily basis actually ruin some people's lives on a daily basis and i think what's very important to discuss and that's why i want both of your thoughts But i want to start with you martin is When you mention that South Africa has a pretty decent constitution in your regard, but it's not being interpreted by classical liberals in the correct way, how do you bridge that gap between the theoretical on paper and reality when you have a decent watertight theory, but it's not penetrating into reality? Reality is actually regressing or crumbling while you are absolutely, I'm sure you're absolutely certain in the validity and the value of your theory but you're actively seeing that it's not bleeding into reality as you would like. How do you build that bridge? And I'd like you to, to start and then also to hear some of uh, Adam's thoughts as well, that building that bridge between theory and reality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, Mark mentioned that he might ask us to, to go into, what do we see about the weaknesses for our own side of liberalism? And one of the that I jotted down was that liberalism in theory speaks as if it's always in power so it's always like this is how things are the state protects your life liberty and property great that's obviously not the reality and i think i'm very fortunate to be a south african where i've borne witness to what is the answer the the most liberal answer to what you do in such circumstances and that again is it's the zionist federation it's afri Forum. it is solidarity you we're not in power, so you build power. You build power outside of the state, and you use that as your vehicle to get your point across. I'm, I'm an advocate, not a legal advocate. I'm an advocate of ideas. That's kind of my skill set, um, but I'm also a paying member of AfriForum, so I, I try to, to do what I can. Um, but you do need those institutions. You can't just have advocates like me writing articles and strongly worded letters to, to the president. It's not going to help. You need to build that source of authority and power. Now, uh, the Free Market Foundation is, exa- is an example of that. The Institute of Race Relations is an example of that. In the United States, in New Hampshire, you have something called the Free State Project, where a bunch of uh, libertarians have decided, we're all going to move to New Hampshire and we're going to take over the organ- or It's like an India national democratic revolution there. We're going to mm-hmm. take all the levers of power. And they've had some successes. Uh, They they've had some successes, and that is how you do it. That's that's simply how you do it. You need to build those institutions. You need to create power outside the state. As far as the constitution is concerned, uh, if I had to hypothesize, we would need advocates, real advocates, not just ideas advocates, uh, and attorneys, and former judges and jurists to get together and establish new law societies, establish new uh, bars um, where they say, listen, we are liberals mm-hmm. and this is how we read the constitution or we are communitarians and this is how we read the constitution. And from now on, we're going to insist on this. That is the, the greatest example of this around the world is the Federalist Society in the United States uh, for, for, well, centuries. Uh, conservatives didn't have a legal voice in the United States. It was always assumed that the American constitution would be a conservatively interpreted document. At some point that stopped with uh, FDR and the New Deal and so on packing the courts. And conservatives got together and they said, well, this won't do. And they established a federalist society. And now (laughs) the Supreme Court is dominated by federalist society affiliated judges because they put the work in they created that source of, of organization of coordination uh, uh in practice and they did this the slow hard work of going into law schools talking to students uh uh indoctrinating up-and-coming attorneys. They did the hard work and it paid off. It's a long term game. But you have to have exactly that action element to it. You have to organize, you have to coordinate, you have to build institutions of power. To take what you believe and to make it a reality.
3: Well, um, the problem with the South African Constitution. Constitution, and that, by the way, that's how revolutions start. When, <laughs> when when people consume alcohol and say things like the problem with the Constitution is, um, so um, so this is not to start a revolution, but but I, I think just to link to the point that the theory is quite good, but the Constitution assumes certain things about society and reality when that reality, the, the reality that we actually have doesn't speak to, to the theory. So the constitution claims to be the highest authority um, in, in, in the land or in the country, but but a, a document can never be the highest authority. The highest authority would at least be whoever has the right to interpret it. Um, and so the, the and, and this is actually something I'm, I'm, I'm linking to. To, to something that Martin has written about this as well, is the different interpretations of the constitution. And so when the constitution says, for example, that you can only expropriate property when it's in the, when it's in the public interest, as far as I'm concerned, there's a very clear explanation as to when is it in the public interest um, to, to expropriate property. But if you ask uh, Julius Malema, he would give you a completely different answer. But I'm not on the Judicial Service Commission, but he is, um, and so and and there are many such examples about certain things. And equality is probably the best example. The Constitution says we are all equal, and and to me equality means something along the lines of equal opportunities. But someone else would read that and say, well, the Constitution says we are equal, so we need more socialism. Um, we need to be equally poor, and then we're equal. And and so so the 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 thing is that that South Africa is a a, a is a multipolar society with different, different cultures, different, I don't want to say different ideologies, but that as well, different ways of thinking about life. And the constitution is this single text that could be interpreted in different ways. And that's where, and in a sense, everyone is frustrated. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not so much about the constitution, but about the political dispensation, um, where a lot of people feel that the constitution is supposed to protect us, but it's not doing that um and and then the, you have a lot of people who feel that, according to the constitution we should we should experience certain things, but we're not experiencing it, or we should we should receive certain things that we believe are rightfully ours, but we're not getting it. So there's this this friction in terms of of what the consequences of the Constitution would be, and I think that's that's the problem with theory and and, and practice.
5: Um, I'm very interested by the sense of community. In Western Europe, we are very interested by the sense of minority. Now, I, I would like to know, uh, as liberal a conservator, which state you estimate to be in the world, the best you would like to be, element one. And talking about freedom, mixing right and duty. We have duty within a community, and we may have right without a community which means I would like to have your clear definition about whatsoever the Western world do not teach us for quite a while in terms of uh, community or destruction of community versus minority right. Whatsoever right can be. I I love rabbits. I want to put rabbits in the church of my neighbor. Uh, And this element is very important for me to understand through your liberalism or conservatism. And in this extent, I think we are blessed in society, because we are far more primitive in our existence, in our perception, and in our duty to be, which begin our right. Thank you very much.
3: Good question. Um, In terms of, so let me just say, I think, I think the the gap between Western Europe and I don't want to say Eastern Europe Central Europe and Eastern Europe uh, rather is is increasing and Huntington Samuel Huntington had that famous thing where he said what's the Iron Curtain is not the fall of the Iron Curtain doesn't mean the end of history it's we're gonna have a Velvet Curtain which means that the divide is going to be between um, societies that value that have a stronger emphasis on the individual and societies that have a stronger emphasis on things like religion and, and, and tradition and so forth. And that's, in a way, the, the, where the Iron Curtain used to be, in a, in a sense, you can see the gaps. So, but if the question is, is a, a good example of a state, uh, I'm, I want to, in a way, dodge the question. But, but if I had to choose, I would say something like South Tyrol. And the reason why I choose that is, is not only because it's a beautiful place, but because I think it speaks a bit, to an extent at least, to the South African reality where South Tyrol is a province. It's actually Alto Adige is the, the official name. It's a province in Italy, but it's a province in which that's primarily inhabited by German-speaking or Tyrolians um, who speak German. And they had some form of a freedom struggle, you could say, and there was friction in the past, and they, they were on the wrong side of Mussolini and Hitler. And, and, and they have a very interesting history, but, but it boiled down to the situation they have now where they are an autonomous province, so even though they are part of Italy, they have, I've heard different numbers. I've heard 70% and the more recent number was 90% of their tax money. They can decide for themselves how it, how it ought to be spent. So even though they are part of something bigger, they, they have a very strong degree of autonomy. Um, and I think that's a good example. And again, that links to demographics. If the German-speaking or the Tyrolians were dispersed all over Italy, they wouldn't have had South Tyrol. So that links to the point of demographics, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting example of thinking about, about autonomy and, and, and in a way breaking this statism um, thing where, where you are at the mercy of the state, especially when you are a, com, a minority community.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean that's for someone like me, it's a difficult question to answer. The best one around the world, I mean, in theory, I might say the United States. I, I think its its written constitution is okay. It's not as great as it could be, but obviously there is a far deeper uh, liberal tradition of understanding what the limits of the government in theory are. But I mean, in general, the West is a basket case, as far as I'm concerned. Now, the United States included, Western Europe included. So in practice, I must just say South Africa. <laughs> Uh, we we just have uh, such such an inept kind of central authority that uh, you kind of you you have the most maximum kind of individual freedom that you could want while at the same time having uh, the the important and strong social constraints uh, uh, just as a matter of being a social being in in a, in a social context. Um, so it's not total anarchy for a lot of us. For other people, it is it is total chaos. Um, but I think uh, South Africa is, is probably in practice one of the best places to be if you want to be free. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think you also asked uh, about uh, the kind of the definition of, of community and, and the role of duty and so on. Um, and I, I just want to kind of give what, what I think is, is the liberal answer to that. And that is that a community is a free and voluntary association of, of, of individuals. Uh, and I know this is something that, that one could nitpick on. But to me, again, bringing it back to South Africa, that is what makes me so excited about solidarity, about AfriForum. These are huge concentrations of, of potential power. But at no point since I've become a member of AfriForum, have I had someone peering through my window and they're like, I'm of AfriForum. I'm just here to make sure you're, you're, being, uh, you're, you're, you're behaving yourself. No one is spying on me online from AfriForum, despite it, I would say, ultimately, uh, in the South African reality, performing some functions of government, uh, filling potholes, providing security. But it recognizes itself as a voluntary association, and that, to me, makes it a perfect international example of what a community should be and ultimately what a a real community, by definition, is. And once you start introducing the violence, the coercion of you are now in this community and you may not leave, then in my mind, the whole notion of community breaks apart and you, you are left with nothing other than tyranny. So that's kind of, the, my, in my view, the liberal individualist conception of community. And I think in South Africa, we have a, a real laboratory where we're seeing this in, in action. Uh, and I'm very excited about that.
1: I see that um, Mike had a question.
6: We have five minutes left until our close.
7: Well, I'll ask a quick question, thanks, David. Um, Mike Brown, you um, uh, started off. I think you said that freedom. Everybody wants freedom. And people fight for freedom and make sacrifices. Presumably, the Ukrainians are fighting for freedom. I suppose at the moment, so it's a, it's a great rallying call. But if you look at um, the taking those freedoms and putting them into a sort of collective form of libertarianism or liberalism. And let's not look at social and perhaps religious and other things, but let's just look at libertarianism as a political force, as a collective force. There were long periods of 18th, 19th century where liberal parties held control in the UK and in parts of Europe, and even the Democrats were quite liberal in the early days, and you know, Joe Biden's not a liberal these days, I wouldn't think. So what you've found, or well, I think you'll be finding, is that as a collective force, liberalism is not a political drawing card and we're going to fight an election in South Africa in six months' time or something like it. I'll be very surprised if any of the 30-odd political parties go out there and say we're liberals. <laughs> this, is our, this is our rallying call. We, we believe in liberal thought and so on. Now, why do you think that's happening?
2: Yeah, so simply democracy is a rent-seeking mess. Uh, you, if you go, if you go out there and you say, "Vote for me," I'm not going to do anything for you. I expect you to do it all yourself. Then no one's going to vote for you. Obviously not, uh, because democracy has rent-seeking built into its very bone, uh, and that's why I, as a committed liberal, am, will never be a Democrat. Uh, and I, I, I think that's an important thing that liberals over many years have lost. We had. A very productive alliance with democracy as liberals for centuries, because democracy tended to favor freedom, because there were certain boxes that were ticked. Only certain people voted. They they all had property. They all had incomes, and then your the, the rent-seeking kind of nature of democracy is limited. Now that is not the reality anywhere in the world anymore. Uh, and and liberals should have been far more foresight. Uh, should have had far more foresight. Uh, uh, centuries ago, before they began this little uh, alliance with democracy, which I think has been has been problematic. Now, let me just, I know it's recorded, so let me just say that there are important elements of democracy that can and should be retained, of course. Uh, democracy also has a, a limiting effect on government. It diffuses power, ensures that many uh, different uh, uh, factions and so on get their views, kind of uh, 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 pull at government at the same time, ensuring that there is no kind of Uh, a central totalitarian body that just dictates. So there are important elements to democracy. But when when democracy is interpreted as allowing the very scope of the coercive institution, that is the state to be enlarged, then you have this rent-seeking thing. If you assume going into it that the state may dictate what my wage should be, then obviously you will vote for the state to dictate that my wage must be very high. (laughs) And that's why we have minimum wages. And that is why we have uh, democracy as a a rent-seeking mess. And yes, liberalism will never be a political force in a democratic dispensation. And that is why I've kind of given up hope on, on, on liberalism as a political force. Rather, it must exercise influences where it can, and build, again, build power outside of the political system as far as it can.
5: Well, I,
3: maybe we can conclude with a, with a debate, but um, I would, I would, I, you know, in a way I agree with Martin, but I'm not as antagonistic towards the concept of, of democracy, but the reason would probably be that, or not we well, probably, the reason is that, that there are so many different conceptions or definitions of democracy as There are as many definitions of democracy as there are lawyers, but, um, the, the way I think, I think what has become, if Martin will forgive me, but what has become known as liberal democracy is this idea that, that democracy means it's the state and it's the individual. Um, it's the state that guarantees individual rights. And, and that to me is, is there was, it was an interesting study on this, which found that liberal democracy works under two conditions. It's an, an, an academic journal by uh, two scholars, uh, Simon and La Puente. I can't remember their names, but their surnames are Simon uh, uh, and La Puente. And, and they, they found that it works when, when it's already a wealthy country, because then people don't vote for socialism. And it works when, when the country is, is much more, it's not a very diverse country. So it works in a place like Sweden and, and so forth. It works better. So when it's sort of a a, a homogeneous wealthy society democracy is the best system with especially when it's a poor society people vote for for the party that promises to give them stuff um and you don't necessarily you couldn't you can't necessarily blame them because if you really live in poverty and this one guy says well you have to go and get a job and the other one says i'm going to get, put bread on your table you don't you can't necessarily blame that person but the reason why i think why i'm, I'm I haven't abandoned hope for the concept of democracy as we, we referenced Alexis de Tocqueville I think I would say there's a difference between what you can describe as natural democracy and an artificial democracy and, and I think what we know as democracy now has become this artificial concept where natural democracy is a community getting together and deciding how they as a community how they want to structure their their lives as a community and and that's what why The book is called democracy in america and why alexis de tockville was so excited about america at the time i don't think it's applicable today that it was communities getting together starting institutions and engaging with each other and if that is democracy then i think that's a healthy concept
6: well gentlemen i wanted to say a very sincere and heartfelt thank you from me and the rest of the free market foundation for very stimulating discussion and martin mentioned uh, the state of new hampshire it's uh, official motto is live free or die, uh, which unfortunately is taken, uh, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, uh, freedom is something definitely worth debating and, and worth deliberating upon. And we spoke tonight about the importance of building institutions. And whilst the free market foundation does not have 300,000 members, uh, I think to echo the sentiments of Martin, we want to create uh, an alternative set of ideas uh, to what we are currently seeing uh, playing out in South Africa, a different way of, of ordering society, if you will. Um, but ultimately what we're concerned with, and everyone around the table tonight has been concerned with human flourishing and, and how uh, individuals can prosper and within communities as well. These are not necessarily uh, polar opposite concepts but uh, I have uh, some very special news to share uh, with the audience here tonight, um, and uh, that is that this location of Northwoods uh, is not only the the home for tonight's uh, excellent discussion, but it will be in future the the home of the Free Market Foundation. We are going to be occupying the offices upstairs uh, from the first of December. We're absolutely delighted about that, and. We are looking forward to having many more such conversations uh, here at Northwoods. Uh, here is the lease, uh, for those of you who may doubt the veracity of my claims. Um, and it is uh, signed and countersigned. But we want this place to not just be our office, but to be a bastion for liberty, a shining light on the hill for freedom. And uh, it's very important for us that, uh, that we use our voices uh, to articulate importance of freedom for South Africans and, and all people. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you to everyone who joined uh, online as well. One of the commentators, uh, one of the people commenting uh, said that this was both a timely and a timeless conversation, and I, I, I thoroughly agree. Thank you once again. Uh, please do join us uh, for a glass of wine to continue the discussion, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again.